carols that I totally miss the meaning of what we're singing, that we can just kind of sing things out of routine, out of just the Christmas spirit, and we totally miss the significance of what we're singing. So part of this is just picking three Christmas carols full of rich meaning, rich theology, and we're going to pause and look at them just to see what we can learn about it. But the second thing is, and I alluded to this two weeks ago in, in the message, we can get so busy at Christmas, you know, going to Christmas parties and family gatherings and work events and shopping for presents and all that stuff that we can miss a lot of times the meaning of the season. And God's given us a lot of grace gifts to help us stay focused on the true meaning of the season. And music is one of God's grace gifts to us. If you think about it, Christians are really the only singing people as far as world religions go. We are singing people because we're, God made us to rejoice in Him and to sing to Him. And we have as a grace gift from the Lord the ability to sing praises to Him. And at Christmas time, to sing these praises about the season for who Jesus is. And so it just re- reminds us and focuses us on what Christmas is all about. So that's why I thought it would be fun to pause for three weeks and look at three different Christmas carols. So what songs to pick? Well, if you go turn on the radio, depending on what station you turn on, um, there's a big difference between what you hear on 89.1 and 103.3 on Christmas music. There, there is a, there's a lot to choose from. But I'm going to pass tonight on Santa Baby or All I Want for Christmas is You or Rudolph or Frosty. You know, so if those are your favorites, sorry, we're not getting those. Nothing wrong with those. They're fun songs. We all sing along to them. As fun as those songs are, they, they, they don't feed our soul. They're just, they're fun. Again, there's nothing wrong with them. They're fun. I enjoy listening to them like you do. But they don't feed our soul. We're going to focus back on some of the Christmas carols that have been around a long time that feed our soul and that are grace gifts from the Lord to help us worship Him this Christmas season. It points us back to the reason for the season. So tonight we're going to look at starting with O Come, O Come, Emmanuel and looking at the longing for Jesus' coming. And like we talked about when I preached two weeks ago, kind of the longing for His first coming that Israel felt and our longing for His return. We're going to see both of those tonight. The next week, we're going to turn to Silent Night, one of the favorites of a lot of people, and really look at his birth through that. And then the following week, we're going to look at Hark the Herald Angels Sing and talk about that carol and look at the rejoicing that happens with his birth. So we'll try to kind of focus on the longing for his birth tonight in a carol, next week his birth, and the week after the celebrations. So that's kind of, if you want to know where we're going with the carols, that is what we're doing with it. And so tonight, we're starting with what we believe to be the oldest Christmas carol still sung today. The Christmas carol that we just sang, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, the words go back to the 800s. Not the 1800s, the 800s. And so it is the oldest known like, Christmas carol words that are still being sung by churches today. It's a carol that actually helped people in the Dark Ages understand who Christ was. It's a carol that, so words go back a thousand years, and it's a carol that, as best we can tell, is sung by every Christian denomination and every type of Christian church. And that is, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. So, um, as we're talking about tonight, we'll just give you a little background before we start looking at the meaning of it. First of all, the bad news is we don't know who wrote it. So, there's a disappointment for the night. I cannot tell you who wrote O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Again, it was written around 800. What we do know is the writer had a deep knowledge of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Because you look through the words and we read through them. Even, even verses that we, stands we normally don't sing, you'll see a deep understanding of the Messiah and who Christ is. So we believe it was probably a monk or a priest. Best guess looking back to 800, it's probably a monk or a priest. And if you think about what we just played, if you listen to the tone of it, you could almost picture Catholic monks chanting what we just sang. Can you almost see them, like, try to visualize monks in their robes going, Oh, come, oh, come, this, this kind of echoing through the halls of a church. That's kind of what we picture how it was written. It was originally written in Latin. It was written where each verse presented a different view of the Messiah. And it originally had seven verses. 
You look on your sheet, there's eight. Don't ask me where the eighth one came from. I cannot figure that out. But when it was originally written, there were seven stanzas. I have tried and tried to figure out this week where, which one got added later, and I just can't figure that one out. So if any of y'all can figure that out, you can let us know. We can email the church and tell everybody. But for some reason, there's eight possible stanzas that float around today in different combinations. Most hymnals only have four or five of these, so you'll see different combinations of them. But when it was written, there were seven verses, seven stanzas of these. And what would happen, these monks would, take, would sing one stanza a day, not like we do it now, but on seven days before Christmas, they would start, and they would chant stanza one that day. And then the second day, they would do the second stanza. And so they would sing these seven or chant these seven stanzas on the seven days before Christmas. So before there was ever the 12 days of Christmas, there was in the hundreds of seven days of Christmas, and it was monks chanting these things. And if you notice, each one of these begins with an O, O come, O come. You'll see that everything starts with an O. And so sometimes they've been called the great O's. Sometimes it's also been called the great antiphones, which means a call and a response type singing. So the question for us tonight is how in the world do you go from monks in the 800s chanting this over seven days to Crowder and Shane and Shane and casting crowds and the Gateway Praise team all singing it now? It's a pretty big jump, isn't it? So how do we get it to where it's still being sung today? Well, we owe it to a guy by the name of John Mason Neal. John Mason Neal. He was the son of an Anglican priest who followed his father's footsteps and became an Anglican priest himself. And this is in the 1800s. So you're already jumping from the 800s to the 1800s to get it in the form that we're familiar with today. John Mason Neal was brilliant. He was educated at Cambridge. And he spoke not five languages, not ten, not fifteen, but he spoke twenty languages. He could read it and he could write twenty languages. I can't imagine that. Most of us have trouble with English, right? 20 languages. And though he was so brilliant, and though he was ordained as an Anglican priest, he was never given a prominent church. And historians disagree on why. There's kind of two competing theories out there. Some people think it's because he had health problems, lung disease, something, we're not sure. Other people think that because he was so brilliant that the Anglican authorities were afraid of him. And they were afraid of how he challenged the establishment. And he was just too smart for them. They, the leadership couldn't keep up with his argumentation. So some think he kind of got demoted because they were fearful of his influence over the people. We don't know, but it was one of those two reasons on that. So instead of being given a church that he was brilliant in 20 languages, John Mason Neal was made the director of a home for old men. And I guess if you're the director of a home for old men, you have free time on your hands, right? And so in his free time, John Mason Neal started doing an orphanage. He started a school. But the most important thing that leads to the, the version of the song we have tonight is he diligently studies Scripture and people's writings about it. And while he was studying writings and theology and songs of old, he came across these Latin chants, these great O's, O come, O come, Emmanuel. When he first translated it, he did not translate it, O come, O come, Emmanuel. He translated it, draw nigh, draw nigh, Emmanuel. Thankfully, that got revised along the way. I'm not sure it would have been as popular. I'm not sure we would be up here singing tonight, draw nigh, draw nigh, Emmanuel. But that's how he began to translate it. But something fascinating about this is why he chose to translate it. Are any of you guys familiar with Isaac Watts? Anyone heard of Isaac Watts? Isaac Watts was a great hymn writer of the, of the olden days. John Mason Neal hated Isaac Watts' music. He despised Isaac Watts' music. He felt that Isaac Watts' quote-unquote modern hymns were too contemporary, were not appropriate for the life of the church. And so he couldn't stand hearing people sing, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, or Alas and Did My Savior Bleed, or I Sing the Mighty Power of God, or Heaven Forbid, Joy to the World. 
he could not stand any of Isaac Watts' words. He thought they were an atrocity in the life of the church. And so to counter the contemporary movement and the praise music of his day, he went back and tried to find old Greek and Latin hymns and translate them to bring them back to life. And in the province guy, that's where O Come, O Come, Emmanuel comes from. This guy who had this name for joy to the world and some of those other great hymns went back to translate and came across this. So just conflict about worship stuff isn't new. This happened with Isaac Watts and John Neal in the 1800s and this. And so he, so he did this. He translated, we get O Come, O Come, Emmanuel out of this. Um, the same guy, John Mason Neal, also translated Good King Wentzless, which would be a fascinating one to look at sometime in the future. He translated that. He also translated Good Christian Men Rejoice, Rejoice. Those were all done by the same guy who was trying to counter Isaac Watts' um, problems in the local church. This is a little fun side note, not related to this hymn. The other thing that he couldn't stand beside Isaac Watts' contemporary hymns was he thought the churches should look beautiful and sacred. And God forbid, in his day and age, people were putting wood-burning stoves in churches to keep people warm, and he thought that was an atrocity. It just ruined the spiritual feel of a church to have a heater in it. And so he campaigned against Isaac Watts, and he campaigned as well against heaters, and, uh, excuse me, ugly heaters and churches. And those were his two kind of crusading campaigns. And out of that, we get not only cold churches, but you get O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. When John Mason Neal did this, he put it to a Latin tomb. He published it in the 1850s. And by 1861, it had made it into the hymnal of the Church of England. And it began to be popular. Within 25 years, all across Europe and America, the hymn had spread. And by then, they shortened it from seven to five verses. And again, I don't know where the eighth verse came from. I never could figure that one out. So what is this song really about as we sing it? It is a song that presents a biblical theology of the roles that Christ fulfilled. I mean, you see that through each verse. It's the roles that Christ fulfilled. It's basically, if you want to think of it, it's a theology, a systematic theology of who is the Messiah. And it pulls from the Old and the New Testament. And it reminds us not only of Christ's first coming, but it reminds us of his second coming. And in the song is this longing, this aching. I mean, if you think about this, what we just sang, and did you notice like the key change in the sound that was so different from the first two songs we sang tonight? And O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Even the music itself has this longing feel. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. You notice every verse even begins with an O. This O is an expressive desire. This is not a, you know, all I want for Christmas is my two front teeth. This is a deep, deep longing for something to happen beyond just I want to train for Christmas or I want two front teeth for Christmas. It's a longing of Israel, longing for the Messiah to come. And it's a longing for us to see him face to face, what I preached on two weeks Ago. So even the music is contemplative to help us remember what that's like. I think it's one reason it's been so popular and stuck around so much. So grab your song sheet, and I want to look for a few minutes at O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. First of all, again, there's eight verses, best I can tell. Depending on where you look at this, you'll see them in different orders. You will see them with different wording changes. You'll see some verses omitted, and I can't find a rhyme or reason to why they get put in that where they do. Again, it's just been adapted and it varies in different places. But first of all, the first thing to notice is notice the different words for the names of Jesus in here. And I put them in bold to make it easier for us. First of all, just look down. Stanza one, Jesus is called Emmanuel. Stanza two, he's called wisdom from on high. Stanza three, he's called the rod of Jesse. Stanza four, he's called Dayspring. Stanza five, Jesus is called the key of David. Stanza six, he's called Lord of Might. Stanza 7, he's called the root of Jesse's tree. And in stanza 8, he's called the desire of nations. And we'll talk more about that. But notice in that, this is a lot of hope. If you think about Advent being a time of hope, there's a lot of hope in these names of Christ 
that are in here. This is hope of God's presence. Again, what I preached on two weeks ago, that we were made for God's presence. We lost in the fall. In Emmanuel, we have it in part, and we long for seeing him face-to-face where we have it in full. So let's just kind of talk through each stanza briefly so we can try to make sure we understand what, we, what we've been singing. So first, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. So first of all, we're told he's Emmanuel. So quick review from two weeks ago. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us, yeah. Emmanuel means God with us. And I'm not going to review it because we preached on it two weeks ago, but if you want to look it back up, go back to Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9 that we talked about two weeks ago. In the midst of human hopelessness, Emmanuel comes and brings hope in the hopeless situation. And particularly the hope that Emmanuel is bringing, he is going to ransom captive Israel. What does it mean to ransom something? To, to pay, to... To buy back, yeah. And so what God is offering, what Emmanuel is coming to do is to ransom his people who are captives. He's going to rescue his people. This is not a self-help, we're great people song. The first verse starts off, oh come, we long for you to come, Emmanuel. We are so helpless, we need you to ransom us. We are prisoners, we are bound, we have no hope, we can't deliver ourselves. Emmanuel, come, ransom us, deliver us, because we have no hope. And again, what I mentioned two weeks ago... In the past, there was an old covenant that we could not keep. Now there's a new covenant that we can't, break, or that we can't be broken because it's all of God's doing. He's going to come ransom us. He's going to come rescue us because we couldn't save ourselves. And just a quick point of clarification. We just spend a lot more time talking about this sometime. Like I say that every few minutes, don't I, in the last few weeks. Lord willing, we have lots of time to do this in the years to come. Um, but to re- realize, that I think there's a misunderstanding in Christianity today that somehow God pays Satan a ransom. No, God owes Satan nothing. This is not a ransom paid to Satan to deliver us. This is God's justice having to be satisfied. Again, God owes the enemy nothing. This is not God bargaining with Satan for us. God could squash Satan in a heartbeat. And he did on the cross. And he will again when he binds him forever. So this is, realize when we're talking about a ransom, this is not a ransom payment to the enemy. This is God delivering us because his justice, his holiness has to be satisfied in that. And so he ransoms captive Israel. He ransoms us captives to our sin. But notice what it says next, that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. Okay, we're not going to look at it tonight. We'll look at some passage. But if you want to look at Isaiah 35, there's kind of this longing. They're described as exiles, and they're longing for the Messiah to come. For us in the New Testament age, I go back to 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2, is, it describes us as aliens and strangers. We're exiles in a land. This is not our home, people. We have our home, and we have our friends and have our normal life in our home. But this is not our home. We're strangers. We're passing through. Our home is in heaven and so we're waiting as exiles on this planet until the son of god appears for us and may god give us grace to have that type of longing and that's what the singer is singing here so first one oh come oh come we're singing to, because we need him to deliver us from our sins and we're longing to make it to heaven verse two and again this may be translated different ways by different people oh come thou wisdom from on high who orderest all things mightily to us the path of knowledge show and teach us in her ways to go. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Sometimes you'll hear this verse rendered, O come, O come, Adonai. Not the name for God in the Hebrew language. But here it's translated, O come, O come, thou wisdom from on high. So the question is, where is the source of all true wisdom? This is an easy answer. Sunday's answer. Where is the source of all true wisdom? 
From the Lord. Okay. Not everyone's confident in Sunday school. So where's the source of all wisdom? From the Lord. From God. God himself. Because God himself possesses all wisdom. And so the hope here is we need God's wisdom. And notice verse, the line two of that stanza. This wisdom from on high. This God who orders all things mightily. Friends, this is God's sovereign reign right here. Christmas was not an afterthought. This wasn't a plan being God's plan. God wasn't up in heaven being like, oops, people sinned. What am I going to do? God has a sovereign plan. And Christmas and the birth of Christ, Emmanuel, is part of it. And whatever we're going through in life is not God's in heaven going, oops, I didn't see that coming for them. God has a sovereign plan for our lives in the midst of whatever difficulties we're going through. God is on his throne. He's ordering, not some things, he's ordering all things mightily. And we don't always understand. So what do we ask for? To us, the path of knowledge show and teach us in her ways to go. We can't understand the mind of the Lord. We can't even begin to pretend to. He has always. And look at Romans 11. Just look at one text here related to this, just to encourage us in this truth that we're seeing here. Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Just to see that God alone has all wisdom. And who are us to even be able to fathom or understand the wisdom of the one who, according as the author of this song says, who orders all things mightily. Romans 11, starting in verse 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? And who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. God alone has wisdom. We can't pretend to even understand his wisdom. And so all we can do is like the, the, the author, I'll say psalmist here, the author of this carol says, is Lord, teach us the ways to go. Remember what I preached on back three weeks ago? Four weeks ago? It's all a blur now. Colossians 1, the one thing to pray for the church we might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That's basically what our come and come Emmanuel is saying here in stanza two. God has all wisdom. We can't pretend to understand why we go through the trials, go through why Christ came when we did. God has the wisdom. We just praise him and we ask him to show us the path that we're to go down and to fill us with the knowledge of his will. So that leads us to stanza three. Stanza three. O come thou rod of Jesse free, thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save, and give them victory over the grave. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. When, we t- when you look at theology, there's a term that we use a good bit, and we call that the already, not yet tension. That there is, when we look at Scripture, things that have happened, but they haven't happened in full yet. There's already come, but there's still a longing for more. That's kind of what I alluded to two weeks ago, that we have hope, but we will have it more fully when Christ Return. So there's already not yet tension. And so we kind of see that in here because of what Christ has done. He's freed us from Satan's tyranny. We are freed already from the penalty of sin. God looks at us and declares us righteous because of what Christ has done. That's already happened. But what we're still longing for is what it says in Satan's from depths of hell thy people save and give them victory over the grave. Friends, the day is coming when we'll be freed from the presence of sin and we're not there yet. We also struggle with temptation. We also struggle in this life. None of us are perfect. First John makes that very clear to us. And so we have this already. He's, he's rescued us from Satan's tyranny, but the not yet. We haven't been fully delivered from the grave yet. We, we haven't been fully delivered from the presence of sin. That is still coming. And so we can be thankful for his first coming and longing for the second coming all at the same time here. Well, what is this rod of Jesse? What is this imagery here? When I think of a rod, 
I think when they're building a building or concrete, they're putting like rebar in. I think of rods like that. I think of rods, my kids in the backyard with big sticks. That's what I think of with rods. But that's not how rods was used in Old English. Rods in the olden days was a stick growing from a bush or a tree. Have you ever gotten out back and had this old, like, weedy, like, sweet gum tree you can't stand? And you, like, whack the thing down. And you look at the stump there, and you come out weeks or months later, and there's what's growing up in the middle of it. This little shoot coming. And you're like, I thought I killed the tree. And it's still coming back up. That's what this idea of rod is here. Or some of your translations may say root. That's the idea of what's coming up. It's something growing in this. And in the midst of the remnant of God's people in a time of difficulty, the Messiah is coming. He's still growing. God's plan is not over yet in this. And so we'll see this in the book of Isaiah. So go to, back to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. We're going to jump around just a few places tonight in this. In Isaiah chapter 11, we have the imagery of where this comes from, of this idea of the rod of Jesse, the root of Jesse still coming forth here. So look at Isaiah chapter 11, and just sort of listen along. I'm going to start in verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. So the ESV kind of translates it to stump to help us get that image of the tree with the thing around. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And look at this. This is a cool image. I love this. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. Guys, if, if you went to the Montgomery Zoo and they put the leopard and the young goat together, it would be like a National, a National Geographic special there. But what we're told here is when this happens, because of the stump from Jesse here, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. Verse 7, the cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the winged child shall put his hand in the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Friends, has that happened yet? Not yet. Yeah, if you did this in Montgomery Zoo right now, you'd be in trouble, you know. And who of us would put our kids, you know, hands down into a cobra's den, you know. But this is what's coming. Because when, when Christ returns, he's going to make all things right. Not only are we delivered from sin, but the whole creation is restored. That's why this longing, oh come, oh come, Emmanuel, make all of this right in this broken creation. And notice that it's described that he is the root or sorry, the rod of Jesse. Who's Jesse? He's the father of who? King David. Yeah, he's the father of King David, through whom the Messiah would come. So this is the lineage of the Messiah, the rod of Jesse. Again, when it looked like God's people were dwindling, out of the remnant, God raises up the Messiah who's going to come to ransom the whole earth, Emmanuel, God with us. And so while we're here, let's go and jump over to verse 7. We're going to take it out of order. So sorry for you OCD people. We're going to go 1, 2, 3, 7, 4. Because verse 7 is, 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 is very similar. So we're going to tackle verse, or stanza 7 while we're here. So look at stanza 7. O come thou root of Jesse's tree. Here's similarity. Stanza 3. O come thou rod of Jesse free. Stanza 7. O come thou root of Jesse's tree. And ensign of thy people be. Before thee rulers silent fall. All peoples on thy mercy call. Anyone ever heard that verse sung before? 
I had never heard that one. I, when I discovered it, I was like, is this part of Okomokomi Manuel? Because I, best I can tell, it was, it was one of the original ones in there. Um, but this is also coming from Isaiah 11 I just read. So let me pick back up where I left off in Isaiah 11. This time I'm looking at 9 and 10. Remember, it began in Isaiah 11, 1 with the shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now back in verse 9. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, so here we go, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. And so what do we have happening here? We have the root of Jesse, the Messiah, Emmanuel, is going to be an, according to stanza 7, an ensign. That's the word we all use every day, right? Don't worry, I had to look it up. I wasn't sure what it was either. And so I looked up what an ensign is. An ensign is a badge, a token, a symbol of official authority. And so here it is that Christ is, what we're singing in stanza 7, O come thou root of Jesse's tree, as an ensign, a symbol of God's authority of thy people be. And I think that's really what's trying to be rendered in Isaiah 11, verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal, a sign for the people. I think it's what's being conveyed here. But again, this is what's not yet happened. Guys, this happened in the world yet before thee, the ruler's silent fall, all people on thy mercy call. That, day, that hasn't happened yet. But friends, that day is coming. That the root of Jesse will arise to rule the Gentiles. And if you want to look it up later, Romans fifteen twelve, Paul applies this imagery here of the root of Jesse coming to rule the Gentile nations. So friends, that day is coming and we can long for that. O come, O come, Emmanuel, the day when all rulers go silent because the true king, the king of kings, is standing there in their midst. So now, sorry, OCD friends, we're going back to verse 4, stanza 4. So stanza 4. O come thou day spring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. Rejoice, rejoice, shall Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. So anyone know what a day spring is? Anyone know that old English word? The day spring is the dawning of a new day. It's the sunrise. It's the dawning. That's the imagery that's being conveyed here on this. I've, I've sung this before and I had no clue what I was singing. O come thou day spring. O come thou sunrise. O come thou dawning of the day. Come and cheer our spirits by thy advent, by thy presence. Here is what we're singing. That Christ himself, Emmanuel, is going to bring hope for us. Like the hope of a new day. When the sun comes up and the light starts to shine through in the darkness. I mean, think about it in the morning. If you're ever driving in the morning... And it's pitch black on your way home or your way into work. And the sun starts to come up. And it's like the darkness just gets pushed away by the light as it comes. That's the imagery that the monk wrote in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. O come thou new day. O come thou dawning of the day. Come and cheer our spirits by the advent here. Disperse the clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. They think about it again when the morning, when you're watching the darkness go away, the sun starts to come up and the shadows begin to vanish and the darkness goes away and the light floods everything. That's the picture we're being given of what happens when Emmanuel shall come. He's going to drive out the darkness. He's going to end death's curse. Oh, it's that last line of stanza four I love. And death's dark shadows he puts to flight. And the presence of Emmanuel, death's grip is loosened and it flees in his presence. Well, this is an imagery that's found in the scriptures themselves back in the book of Malachi. So the last book of the Old Testament, if you want to see one place where this imagery is based on in the scriptures, is Malachi chapter 4. 
Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. And the context here is the people are struggling basically with why the wicked are prospering, why they're in the same judgment. And we kind of see that image, that question rising throughout Scripture. But in Malachi chapter 4, listen to what happens. Again, this is the not yet. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Verse 2. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. It shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. That's the imagery of what the person who wrote, O come, O come, Emmanuel, the day spring is coming and cheering. Verse, chapter 4, verse 2 of Malachi. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness rises. Who's the sun of righteousness? It's Christ. He's the S-O-N, the son of God. He's also described here as the S-U-N, the son of righteousness. And that weird expression with healing in his wings. What is it talking about? If you ever watch sunrise or watch times when it seems like the rays of the sun are almost like visible to you, that's the imagery here of the, the wings of the sun that you've got right here. That imagery of it. It's basically the imagery that anything that's coming out of the influence of Christ, his rising, is going to be influenced by him. He's going to restore all things and make it right. And again, we're not going to look there, but Luke chapter 1, verse 78, in the middle of Zechariah's prophecy, he also references the Messiah coming in terms of daylight. So it's an imagery from Scripture that the person who wrote, O come, O come. Emmanuel did. So, last three stanzas here. Number five here. O come thou key of David, come, and open wide our heavenly home. Make safe the way that leads on high, and close the path to misery. And this is a longing for the not yet again, the longing for our heavenly home, the longing for God to preserve us on the journey. Make safe the way that leads on high. It's asking God to preserve us, to persevere us on the journey that we are on. And notice that Jesus is called the key of David. The key here is the authority. It's the authority of a steward to make decisions on behalf of the one who sent him. And so perhaps you're a business owner. You might give to one of your employees a key and say, hey, go to the safe and get this out. That key is your authority to go do what you're sent to do. He's the key of David. Jesus is coming, doing what God sent him to do. The imagery comes from, not going to go there today, but Isaiah 22, 22, if you want to look, look at that. It's the earthly servant, but it has prophetic implications on that. That's where you see that imagery first used. He's the key of David. But he's also described the key of David in one other place in Scripture. So go to the last book of the Bible now, Revelation. Revelation chapter 3. There's two spots in Scripture he's called the key of David. And Isaiah 22, 22 is one. We'll not go there right now, but Revelation 3, 7 is one. So listen to Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. So you listen to how Christ is described here. The words of the Holy One, the true one, this is Christ, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut. Whatever Christ opens, no one can shut, not even the enemy himself. And who shuts, no one can open. If Christ shuts and no one can open it, it's the imagery here for us that Jesus alone is the way to heaven, that Jesus alone has authority, that Jesus alone is sovereign. And friends, for those of us who are putting our hope in Christ in this, there's the promise of Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in you will see it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. That's what you're singing in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel here. O Come, thou key of David, come. We're saying if we're trusting in you, you're the one who's opened the way of salvation for us. You're the only way. We're coming through you, O key of David. Open wide our heavenly home. Make safe the path that leads on high. That's kind of the prayer of Philippians 1. And close the path to misery. We're trusting that he who's called us on this path He's going to surely see us to completion. It's the perseverance of the saints. If he's called us, he's going to see us all the way 
to the end. And so realize that's what you're singing, that rich theological truth of the perseverance of the saints. That's what you're singing when you're talking about the key of David in this. Okay, two more here. Stanza six. O come, O come, thou Lord of might, who to thy tribes on Sinai's height, in ancient times did gifts the law, and cloud and majesty and all. You never heard this one sung? Me either. So, and I don't know which one was added later, but they all still follow the same rhyme, so we don't know. This is a simple reminder, real quick on this one, that God is the one who gave the law, but can the law save us, friends? It can't. The, the law, we can't fulfill it. Therefore, we cry out for Emmanuel to come to save us from that because he's the only one who can fulfill the law that he himself gave. So look at the book of Romans real quick. Romans chapter 3. When we think of Romans, we, Romans 3, we normally think of like a one verse of evangelism where we normally kind of jump straight to all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. But there's some verses that precede that that have to do with what we're singing here in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And that's Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Did you catch that? That through the law here, no human being will be justified in his sight. Friends, you nor I have any capability of keeping the law. Only Christ kept the law perfectly. So when we rejoice in verse 6 and remember the fact that God gave the law, that doesn't give hope to us. That strikes fear in our heart because we can't keep that law. We've all fallen short of that law. We are under that law. We're under the curse of that because we failed in that. And so we long for Emmanuel to come, the one who kept the law perfectly and who can impart to us his righteousness where we have fallen so short and take our sin in that. Right, look at verse, or verse stanza seven a few minutes ago, but let's get to the last one. Stanza eight. O come desire of nations bind in one, the hearts of all mankind. Bid thou our sad divisions cease. And be thyself our king of peace. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. So here's that not yet theme again. See it? We're longing for that hasn't come, that we're still longing to happen the future day when this will take place. Guys, is this this the state of our world right now when all hearts of all mankind is bound together in one? Does it sound like what you look when you turn on the news tonight? Not at all. Is it the day when sad divisions have ceased? Not turn on the news. There's divisions. When I look at Christian families, there's divisions. When I look at the churches, there's divisions. This is not what we're experiencing now because we're still living in the cursed and fallen world in that. And human nature longs for this. That's why there's a UN. That's why we try to do peace treaties. That's why often our, our government leaders somehow think that if we can just educate people or do these things, people are going to get better. They assume people are going to be good. There's a longing in our hearts to have what Stanza 8 talks about. All mankind's hearts in one, sad divisions cease, and peace to be there. But can the UN bring peace? Can treaties bring peace? There's only one who can bring peace. And so what the nations are really desiring, what the nations are longing for in peace, can only come in Christ and nowhere else. Haggai chapter 2, if you want to read it later, verse 6 through 9, prophesied this day coming. But friends, this day is coming when there is peace between all groups. Go back to the book of Revelation. Last one to look at tonight. One of my favorite texts in Scripture. Maybe we get to preach on it one day. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. When Christ returns, when what we're longing for in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel happens, when Jesus, the desire of nations, comes and binds together the hearts of all mankind, comes and stops all sad divisions, and he comes as king of peace, 
This is what it's going to look like, at least one of many glimpses of what it looks like in Scripture. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. They're not saying they're fighting. They're not saying they're warring. They're not saying they're with division. Listen to what these people from every nation, tribe, people, and language are doing. They're all standing together in unison before the throne and before the Lamb. They're all clothed in white robes, all with, white, with palm branches in their hands. And they're all crying out with a loud voice. Catch the unity of this. They're all crying out with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so that's the day coming, friends. But not yet. When Christ returns, he's going to end all division. He's going to end all I'll strike, and he's going to come as the king of peace. And what we saw in Isaiah 11 earlier, when this happens, it's not just peace between people, but the wolf and the lamb will lie down together. Our kids can go play next to cobras, and they'd be okay. But when Christ comes, the entire creation comes to a state of peace. And so just glance back at this. So written in, in AD 800, Christ is Emmanuel, God with us. Christ is wisdom from on high. Christ is the rod of Jesse. He's the shoot of Jesse. He's the promised Messiah coming to the lineage of David. Stands before, he's the day spring. He's the dawning of a new day. He's the key of David, the only one who can unlock salvation, the only one who can set the path of salvation. He's the Lord of might. He's all-powerful. He's the root of Jesse's tree, and he's the desire of the nations. That is some rich theology of who Jesus is that we're singing in the song. But look at what we're longing for in this. Stands of one, we're asking him, for his presence. Oh, come Emmanuel. Come God with us. We're asking him for deliverance from our sin. Ransom us. We're captives. Stanza two. We're crying out to him this longing. Oh, come because why? We need you to, to us the path of knowledge show. We're asking God to show us how to live our lives. We're asking him to teach us how to, to live. Stanza three. Our longing is from the depths of hell thy people save. We're asking for victory over sin now, the power over sin in our life, and we're asking for that day to come when we're free from the presence of sin. Stanza four is a day we're longing for when there is no more death. The day we see Jesus face to face and death is no more and has lost all grip on life. Stanza five, our longing of O come, O come, Emmanuel. What are we longing for? We're longing for the assurance of heaven. Make safe the path or the way that leads on high. We're just asking God to do what he's promised to do to persevere us to the end on that. Stanza 6, we're, asking, we're being reminded of God's word and we're asking to hear God's word, but we're ultimately asking him to give us Christ's righteousness because we can't be righteous in the sight of the law. Stanza 7, we're asking for Christ's return, the day when the rulers fall silent, when all the peoples, all the different nations call on his mercy. And finally, in stanza 8, we're longing for peace. Friends, those are some good longings at Christmas. I don't know if you think, if you've ever heard the Christmas song on the radio, uh, the grown-up Christmas list. You ever heard that song? No more lives torn apart, the wars would never start. Well, that's a good hopeful song, but there's no hope in that. You can sing that all you want. There's nothing inherently wrong with the song, but there's no hope in that. That's just a, that's just a wishful thinking. That's not hope. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel's hope. There's a difference in my grown-up Christmas list that's just wishful thinking and O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, because this is not just, I hope this happens. Friends, this is going to certainly happen. Christ is coming back. We long for it, and we know for sure it is going to happen. And so I pray that as you sing O Come, O Come, Emmanuel in the future, you hear it on the radio and think about it. Let it fill your heart, not only with thankfulness for Christ's coming, but let it fill your heart with the hope that he's coming again and all these longings will be satisfied in him. So what I want us to do in a few minutes, we have a turn to the back of your, your song sheet. I'll snuck some questions on the back of it for you tonight. 
And so we have about 12 or so minutes here. And so what I'd like for you to do is to, is to get together in groups of whatever size you want to. You're adults, you can decide sizes. So you know, I'd recommend four or five or six, but you, you pick what you want. If you just want to pair up with someone sitting next to you, if you want to get in a small group. And, and think about some of these questions together. You don't have to do all of them. Pick one or two you want to talk about if you have time to do all of them. But here's some things to think about. God has done amazing things in history and in our lives. Why do we need reminders like the song to rejoice? Because, you know, notice the song over and over is calling God's people. Rejoice, rejoice, amen. Why do we have to be reminded to rejoice so often? Why do I need that reminder? Either it's your pastor. Why do I need you to, at times to come and say, Grady, don't forget to rejoice? Why do we need that reminder? Secondly, notice the many names for Jesus in the song. Emmanuel, Wisdom, Rod of Jesse, Dayspring, Key of David, Lord of Might, Root of Jesse's Tree, Desire of Nations. Which of those names gives you the most hope? And why? That'd be fun just to hear. Third question, how does remembering Jesus' first coming and longing for his second coming give us hope in the midst of the difficulties and trials of life? How does basically thinking about Advent here help you when you're going through a trial? And then number four, many longings are expressed in the carol. Longings for what I just talked about, for wisdom, for knowing the path to go, for freedom from temptation, for heaven, for peace, for Jesus' second coming. Which of those longings do you most identify with this in this song? Which longing do you most feel? This Christmas season. So let's take about the next 10 minutes, get into some small groups. I want you all to talk to one another about what, you're, what, you, think, what you think from O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Then we're going to come in 10 minutes and sing it one more time together.